For the week of May 1st, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hello, welcome. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in our nation's capital. I've got some friends here with me who I haven't talked to in what feels like a long time. But you know what they say about old friends. It's like uh, time never passed when you join them again. Catherine Hamilton, a partner at the clean energy consulting firm 38 North Solutions, is one of them. Catherine, you haven't, like, moved your house or gotten a new job since I talked to you last, have you? No, but my second oldest kid just graduated from college this last weekend from University of Redlands in Southern California. Um, and wants to go into renewable energy finance. He even wore this green rope around his neck with big dollar signs hanging off of it to, to signify that he was part of the investment club. Pretty cool. So we meant, you mentioned this a few episodes back, and it sounds like he wanted to do it on his own. You didn't even push him to do that. Not at all. It was amazingly organic. And he's, he's taken kind of a bullish position on geothermal, which I find very interesting. Well, maybe it was our episode on geothermal telling them to get their butts in gear. So maybe your son can actually act on that. <laughs> our friend up in New York is also here. It's Jigger Shaw, solar entrepreneur and clean energy investor. Jigger, have you been just sitting in your office, sulking for weeks, waiting for that Skype line to ring, hoping it would be us? You know it. You know it. But, you know, the, the thing that I've been, like, fascinated by is who's going to buy the Clippers? <laughs> I'm not quite sure. I'm not much of a basketball aficionado. You are, of course, referring to the racist remarks from David Sterling, the owner of the Clippers, which got him banned for life from the NBA. Those are really important to talk about, but I have to say the celebrity scandal gossip tends to move pretty quickly in the press, and I'm already focused on the latest Rob Ford video that allegedly shows him smoking crack once again. So that's what's captured my attention, at least for the afternoon. Well, you know, according to Harry Reid, it's uh, it's better to do crack than do coke. <laughs> that's right. And we will be talking about the Coke brothers later in the episode. Uh, before we begin, I want to mention something big that did change since we've been gone. We've got a new podcast website and logo, greentechmedia.com slash podcast. Uh, go there, and that will bring you to our newly redesigned page where you can check out past episodes, see our new logo, and look at cartoon images of us. Maybe you could even listen to the show while looking at those sketches of our faces, although that might be a little weird. But go check it out, bookmark it, tell your friends, greentechmedia.com slash podcast. All right, let's get the show started now. First up, we're talking about a topic right in Jigger's backyard of New York. Utility commissioners there have drafted one of the most progressive regulatory proposals in the U.S. in recent history. We'll discuss its implications. Meanwhile, right next door, New Jersey regulators are still debating a post-Sandy grid hardening package proposed by the state's biggest utility. We'll look at what's in it and what its delay says about the post-Sandy environment. Finally, we'll talk about the latest solar tax in Arizona that's got the industry scrambling for a fix once again. And at the end of the show, we'll tell you something you do not know. Or we'll try to anyway. Okay, first topic, the New York state of mind. New York may not have the biggest solar market or the most demand response or be the most energy efficient state in the country, although it is in the top three. But it's turning into one of the most progressive states when it comes to clean energy. And I'm not talking about the state setting storage targets or beefing up its solar goals or opening its green bank. I'm talking about something bigger. 
a fundamental change to the way the electricity system is regulated. That's what Governor Andrew Cuomo, State Energy and Finance Chairman Richard Kaufman, and New York Public Service Commission Chair Audrey Zibelman have set out to do. In a report this week, state regulators laid out their vision for a new performance-based regulation system that turns distribution utilities into system platform providers, with a central goal of enabling behind-the-meter energy systems like solar, storage, and demand response. This would be more than just simple decoupling. This would be a wholesale change to the way utilities do business by rewarding them for achieving environmental and distributed energy goals, not just simply developing new infrastructure. The first set of rate design and rulemaking will happen next year, and a final, more detailed report will come out this summer. Jigger, give us some context on this. How did the Public Service Commission get here? This didn't just happen overnight. Well, I, I, it certainly didn't happen overnight, but I do think it really happened, you know, with Richard Kaufman's selection there and then Audrey uh, Zibelman's, you know, selection at the uh, New York Public Service Commission. You know, my sense is, is that there's a lot of folks who keep talking about decoupling and net metering and how do we, uh, you know, accommodate standby charges for combined heat and power. And at the core of all of that is that there are a lot of folks who believe that we are overbuilding the grid just to give the utility something to spend money on, um, as opposed to having a more thoughtful approach about how we integrate these technologies to really save ratepayers money. And the first goal here is to integrate demand response more into the market. And, and they mentioned in this report that the bulk power system um, is approximately 75% higher than the average load on the distribution system. So there's a major gap there in New York. Uh, that is the same for the distribution system all around the U.S., and New York seems to be the first one to really want to tackle this in a comprehensive way. Yeah, and nobody knows this better than Audrey Zibelman, who worked uh, as an executive at PJM Interconnection, You know, the, the independent system operator that operates... 13 states um, and understands what what the what the ISOs are facing. And then she also was CEO and founder of Ridity Energy, which did virtual demand response. So she understands this kind of nexus of how you operate the bulk power system and then how what that connection could be to the distribution side. So let's set this in context. What the regulators are basically calling for is this model similar to what they've done in the UK called the Rio model, which is revenue set to deliver strong incentives, innovation, and outputs. And basically what that means is you set a performance target around whatever goals you want to achieve and reward utilities on meeting them. So it could be an environmental goal. Again, it could be to integrate more demand response, efficiency, make the system uh, much more efficient. It's different from traditional rate of return regulation, which simply sets rates um, based on new infrastructure investments made by utilities one or two years at a time, um, many of which may be at odds with those environmental or demand reduction goals. So is this unique within the United States? I mean, have you seen any other commissions propose this, or is New York really going out on a limb and being a first mover on this? No, I, I mean, unless Catherine knows otherwise, I think this is really the first that's talking about doing this on a systemic basis. Um, I think that the, the, the big challenge that we're all going to have in this conversation is around whether it's really the utilities should, that should have all of these 
mandates and these goals, that to the extent that the goals are broader, that the private sector can actually meet the goals, um, are they going to get paid directly or um, do they always have to use the utility as a blocker um, by which they can provide their services? Yeah, I agree uh, because they're asking each utility to be a distribution system platform provider, which moves the marketplace to the edge of the grid. Um, what this is doing, you know, New York has decoupled utilities, so they're not in the same place as a lot of other states that have fully integrated utilities that that um, would really need to to leapfrog to have something like this happen. Um, so they already have decoupled utilities who've been already thinking about energy efficiency for a long time and and other kinds of technologies. Um, but the key is, like, are the utilities going to be able to deliver on this? And so in their process, they've built in sort of two waves, you know, the utilities, you know, come up with your plans. LIPA is going to go first. They had already been thinking along these lines, and then they're going to also be developing tariffs. It'd be really interesting to see how they do this and how this intersects with uh, the rule that EPA will come out with in June on the greenhouse gas, you know, 111D provisions, because this could potentially put New York in a really good position on meeting those. And it follows up another landmark ruling uh, in February. So when Con Edison went to regulators and um, you know asked them to approve its one billion dollar storm response plan, environmental groups and um, climate lawyers at Columbia University and uh, the Pace Climate and Energy Law Center jumped in and said, hey, wait a second, if we're going to approve this billion dollar plan or eventually a two billion dollar plan to harden the system, we need to be looking at storms beyond Sandy. We need to think comprehensively about extreme weather. So when you approve this plan, you should set in motion a process to require Con Edison and other utilities in New York to consider other climate impacts long term and thinking about developing infrastructure through the middle of the century. They approved that. And now there's this new collaborative process in place between uh, Columbia, Pace, Environmental Defense Fund, NRDC, to work with Con Edison um, on figuring out how storage, demand response, solar uh, efficiency, and grid hardening come together to create a better resiliency package. So that was the first in the nation as well. And this adds on to that. And, and the c combination of those really sets New York in a leadership role like uh, no other state has been. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that AES submitted a non-conforming bid to LIPA two years ago um, when they were asking for a new natural gas uh, peaker and uh, said storage would be a lot cheaper. And they actually proved their case, but LIPA decided that they couldn't actually move forward with it because of the, the rules. And then separately, LIPA this year announced that um, all of their solar and storage and other efforts would save $100 million dollars in transmission and distribution upgrades to the grid, which is similar to what Southern Company said before. And so, I mean, the trick here is figuring out how you actually institutionalize that analysis process as opposed to this sort of one-off stuff that LIPA and Southern Company have done. And then what about this decision not to really set quotas, but to put in process a place where like utilities can look at the economic value of certain technologies. Do you have any additional background on that? They've said specifically, we're not going to set a storage target, for example, in place. We're going to help all the utilities identify the most economic solutions and then integrate those into the grid. Can you uh, help me understand 
how that would specifically work. So, I mean, I think it's the other side of the coin, and that's what they have to figure out, right? So where California, they've been very top-down with you know, decoupling and energy efficiency, where they said to the utilities, you must invest a billion dollars a year in energy efficiency. Does that actually meet the need? Probably not, but it's a number. And the same thing's true with 1,377, I think, megawatts of storage. Whereas I think the, what they're trying to achieve here is that every single time um, Con Ed or others have to upgrade something. So, for instance, Con Ed is saying that this new substation they have to build in New York City will cost a billion dollars in Sunnyside. Well, you know, there seems to be a whole bunch of technologies that you could implement to actually extend the life of the current substation, which includes storage, might include deep energy efficiency, it might include appliance upgrades, all sorts of other things, or distributed generation. Um, to save that billion. And so I think that they want to go that way where you're solving problems and then figuring out how the technology solve those problems as opposed to just setting overall targets. Yeah, definitely. So it's all market driven. And that doesn't necessarily mean the lowest cost for X piece of equipment. It's compared to what? And what are all the metrics that have to go into that? So I agree. I think it's going to bring in a lot more different technologies and applications of those technologies where you'll really be able to look at the full value and all those different benefits for for each of those. Jigger, did you work on any portion of this? I know you've been close with Richard Kaufman and have uh, advised him and, and that office on some of their clean energy priorities. R- r- did you work on this at all? Well, I had a lot to do with the New York Sun program. Um, so Richard had me do some work on that. But I think that, you know, I'm not, I'm an unpaid sort of friend here. So um, there's very little I can do in an official capacity. The most I can do is sort of provide, you know, guidance on probably, you know, the right approach in terms of questions to ask. Right. I, t- I had talked in uh, in trying to get some background on what they were doing. I talked to Bill Acker, who is the head of New York Best, which is the battery and energy storage group, and they had a lot to do with this. They worked, they, you know, there's been a ton of background work over the last year in developing this plan. And in fact, they just christened a brand new technology facility, commercialization and testing facility up in Rochester yesterday that the governor came to, and the governor was talking about this plan, the Rev plan. Let's do it. So, Jigger, would you venture? To say that this is a historic process putting, being put in place? Yeah, I think that actually that word is very appropriate here. I think that, you know, I think I've been very public in saying that I think that the most fragile electric utilities in the country, I think, have 10 years left before, you know, they basically get completely decimated by distributed generation and technology. And I think that that's going to leave people in the same situation that people are in in Hawaii where electricity rates have skyrocketed and the poor and the elderly are taking it on the chin. And my sense is is that this process is a very good process, a historic process to figure out how we actually make this transition without, you know, socking it to the elderly and the poor. Let's move next door to New Jersey to talk about utility regulation again. The state's largest utility, PSE&G, is in a standoff with the Board of Public Utilities over its $3.9 billion grid hardening plan developed after Superstorm Sandy. The package, which includes burying power lines, raising or moving substations, and investing hundreds of millions of dollars in new sensors and software to monitor the grid, is bigger than what any utility has proposed after Sandy ripped through the East Coast. And that's part of the problem. Commissioners and ratepayer advocates concerned about cost have said no way. Tone it down, reduce the cost. But PSENG claims the upgrades are all necessary and has said it won't raise rates nearly as much as opponents claim. 
So what does this conflict mean in the context of resiliency planning after Superstorm Sandy? Catherine, um, in a situation like this, where do your sympathies lie? So PSE&G is basically fixing what it was criticized for after Sandy, but it's also an extremely expensive plan. Thoughts on this showdown, you know, nearly two years after Sandy? Yeah, so the, the one of the issues is that New Jersey has a very different utility construct than New York. So they're fully integrated. And so their whole model is we build, put steel in the ground, we mortgage those assets, and, they, and then we get rate recovery for those assets. So they're back in the system that's completely different than what New York has. So already the approach by the utilities is going to be different than the approach on, you know, on resilience and the approach in New York. Um, so I have some sympathy in the fact that they are fully integrated. I also understand that you know they are charged with keeping the lights on. They have to have facilities that they can call upon to get people electricity. The grid certainly is very fragile, and just throughout the country, our electric grid is is in desperate need of modernization. Now there are a lot of different ways to do it, and there are different varieties of hardening. And it does seem that this hardening is particularly hard. Um, and you know, so there. When there's this there's this juxtaposition of what the utility is incentivized to do, you know, what they really need to do to their grid, but then also kind of the lack of whether it's an ability or the lack of being able to be open minded about other solutions that could prevent them having to really harden their grid to this level. So I'm I'm kind of seeing both sides of it. Yeah, I agree. I see both sides. And I'm somewhat sympathetic to the utilities when it comes to them addressing the criticisms after the storm. So PSENG, for example, had 13 or 14 substations that were partially damaged or flooded out during Sandy. And they've known for a long time that those are in uh, vulnerable areas and people have been trying to encourage them to move them. Well, finally, after Sandy, they put together a package to raise those substations or move them entirely. And now the environmental groups uh, that were criticizing PSENG before Sandy are criticizing them for the cost of the program afterwards. So for the utilities, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. However, I will say that pretty much everything that PSENG could do uh, is in this plan. And unlike other utilities, they haven't really prioritized. And the big question here for regulators isn't oh isn't necessarily everything in the plan. It's how PSENG wants to pay for it, and they want to pay for it immediately up front without going through a traditional uh, rate case. And so by paying for it within a year or two, uh, the regulators say, well, that will raise rates 20%. PSENG says no, with natural gas prices low, with interest rates low, it will only raise rates 5 or 6%. So there's this debate going back and forth. Um, but I will say that there are legitimate concerns about how they want to pay for this thing. And, you know, ratepayer advocates say, well, great, you want to pay for this up front. This is going to be a construction bonanza and give your rate or give your investors two and a half billion dollars up front. And so it'd be better for your shareholders than for actual ratepayers. And the irony is that FEMA funds that you get for rebuilding, you can only rebuild what was there to begin with. So you can't do this with FEMA funds. Well, you know, look, I mean, I think Ralph Fizzo is one of the smartest CEOs 
in the United States today. I mean, I, I, I can't actually even – there's only maybe four or five folks I'd put in his league. Um, this is a guy that since he's been CEO has figured out a rate base, all sorts of stuff from solar rec contracts to those you know solar systems from Petra Solar on uh, – on telephone poles to this stuff. I mean, this guy has not given an inch at all on the traditional utility business model. Um, and when every time PSE&G's on stage, like Diana and others, they're always sort of whining about how you know they're doing the best they can and that PSE&G's in the lead on solar integration, et cetera. Um, and you know, all the way, I mean, this guy's laughing all the way to the bank because he's figured out how to rate base everything in the state. Yeah, and I'll tell you, they, they are making it difficult for energy storage folks to interconnect. Um, um, there's very little that's being done, although the New Jersey um, Board of Public Utilities has a resilience effort of their own. They have a very small program that would provide um, storage, grants for storage uh, to back up, back up rooftop solar. You know, part of the issue is you know, New Jersey has this great uh, solar program. They have tons of solar rooftop. And then when, they, when the storm came in, all those people thought that they would still have electricity because they had solar on the roofs. And, it, of course, that was not true because it was, it was connected to the utility grid. So they, they do have a grant program that's, that's going to be issued that's going to allow a few people to put in you know, for emergency situations instead of having diesel gensets to have um, energy storage. But it's kind of – it's a really small program. But that's the kind of thing that you could do. And, and that, to me, would be a smarter – smarter than you know putting everything underground but look i mean i think that i just i really do think ralph Izzo is one of the smartest guys out there and i do think that you know that that he's played this game pretty well but you know the bottom line is everything catches up and new jersey is paying much higher electricity rates today than they were before when i first signed a contract with staples and whole foods in new jersey in 2003 and four um those contracts were at a 1% discount to what they were currently paying for electricity prices in New Jersey. Today, those customers are saving an average of 35% on their electricity bill versus PSE&G rates because our rate increase of 1% a year was far slower than PSE&G's real rate increase per year. So PSE&G is not a cheap place to buy electricity, and Ralph has done a great job of figuring out how to get the Public Service Commission to keep giving him more and more and more money. Well, they're certainly not this time around. The commission doesn't seem to want to budge on this. My guess is that they're going to pare this down by a billion dollars or so. Well, they could just adopt what Audrey's doing in New York. I mean, and figure out a more thoughtful way of of running this utility as opposed to just, you know, putting all these hard assets in the ground and um, charging their ratepayers a fortune for it. That's right. And it's not just about what technology you install, but what that technology is doing. So, for example, if you were to say, I want a battery to back up every solar rooftop as, as emergency generation, that's an extremely expensive proposition. What you want is for that battery to be available for grid services and to be able to actually bid into the wholesale market and provide service ancillary services, frequency regulation and such to in the PJM market. Um, and yet... You know the the way it is now is PSE and G actually charges that then as a distribution load, uh, which which negates any of the cost effectiveness. But this isn't just about technology. This is really about what you do with it and how you're able to um, to work within the competitive markets. And you know that's what would need to change in New Jersey. Our final topic deals with another showdown. This one in Arizona, where the industry is dealing with a new question about solar. 
is a third-party-owned solar system a merchant power plant? The answer to that question could determine the fate of residential solar leasing and PPAs in the state. And as of now, the Arizona Department of Revenue says, yes, they are. And that means all third-party-owned systems, old and new, are subject to property taxes. Next year, all solar customers could be paying an additional $150 per year in taxes, virtually wiping out the savings that third-party solar providers offer in the state. This is on top of a $0.70 per kilowatt fixed charge that Arizona regulators agreed on last year. So solar demand is already way down in the state, and these new taxes could pretty much kill much of the remaining demand. The issue has put solar development in a new context. How could a conservative state like Arizona, which prides itself on low taxes, continue adding new fees on solar, argue installers, The industry is pushing Governor Jan Brewer to step in and change the rule before it hits next year. And the conversation is spreading far beyond Arizona. Major journalistic outlets are framing their solar stories around the taxation issue, most recently pointing to the conservative Koch brothers for supporting fees on solar while continuing to call for lower taxes on the oil and gas industry. Jigger, we played this clip of you discussing the net metering taxation issue in Oklahoma on MSNBC last week. You didn't really get into Arizona in that interview with Chris Hayes. What do you think about Arizona's solar property tax war? So this is a very complex um, issue. So, for instance, in Florida, the reason why solar has never taken off in Florida um, is because of this issue. So in Florida, we actually had a constitutional sort of amendment that we passed to to sort of um, ban uh, property taxes on solar, which then got sort of reversed or expired. Um, you can imagine this is this is a common issue that is just sort of unintended consequences. Like in Texas, they have very low taxes because they charge you a- uh, asset taxes, which is what this is. And with solar, you know, let's say solar returns – 15% of the total cost up front every year in energy savings. If there's a 7.5% tax, that means half of your energy savings are gone for this tax. And it's completely unreasonable compared to a coal plant or a natural gas plant or something else where the capital cost is far lower than the operating costs, which aren't taxed. But this is the very esoteric area that solar has been working on for over 20 years to exempt itself from these property taxes across the country. But, you know, in this case, there's been some backsliding here in Arizona. Hey, Jigger, could you not take like a bonus depreciation for the equipment to offset that? Yeah, but the problem is, is that it, it's it's calculated separately. But it's a good question, and we can definitely get some people to check on it. But but um, but it's calculated separately. So you basically take the straight line depreciation and you calculate it based on that so that um, because this is how Texas, for instance, gets paid. I mean, Texas corporations pay on their net assets. They don't pay on income because that's how they decide to do taxation. And so we had to specifically get exempted from those taxes in Texas or else, you know, solar would have just died there. So let's just strip away the conversation about why we think solar is good. Customer empowerment, environmental needs, all that stuff. This is legally fair, right, in Arizona? I mean, Arizona Public Service, for example, owns distributed generation assets, and it's forced to pay property taxes on those assets. How is a third-party solar company any different? Yeah, no, I I think that 
the the legal ramifications uh, the, the legal precedent here makes sense that's not the issue the issue is that when it comes to power generating assets solar and wind technology have very high capital costs and very low operating costs and so these taxation policies were put in place when they thought all power generating assets had low capital costs like coal and natural gas do um, and high operating costs. And so they're like, well, your tax on your capital is going to be you know, pretty small because you know, generally you're mostly paying for the fuel and the maintenance anyway, and that's not taxed. Um, and so it's just that this taxation scheme doesn't work for solar or wind or geothermal or other technologies where you have a high upfront cost and very low operating costs. And I have another question about the implications of this for the third-party-owned model. So if consumers look at this and say say this gets traction and people pick up on this, if consumers see that and say, oh, my gosh, in the contract, Solar City or Sunrun passes these taxes on to me, and then this happens in another state because this is actually retroactive, right? Solar customers who have solar today will soon qualify for this new property tax. So it doesn't matter when you installed your system. If this happens in other states, then people get that tax passed on to them if they have uh, a third-party-owned system. Do you think that has implications for customer adoption in, in other areas? Yeah. Look, I mean, I think that um, I think this is you know a problem. I mean, I do think in the residential space, you're seeing a massive shift of people away from leases and towards loans. Um, but but even if you're doing a loan, if you own an asset and you have to pay taxes on that asset. Um, you would have to, you know, you would be affected. But I guess in Arizona, there's probably an exemption for residential homeowners who own their own system. Um, it's it's only third-party-owned systems where this is considered merchant. So I think you're going to basically see everyone in Arizona move to loans, which is already happening nationwide anyway. I mean, Solar City and Sungevity and others are already doing loans as it is, just because you're finding the whole lease construct doesn't really save you much um, when you've got. Um, very low-cost loans available now. So I think I think that'll be the big story for sort of 2014 and 2015 anyway is a move to, towards loans. Mm-hmm. I mean, the big story here within this context is that national journalistic organizations are picking up on this and talking about solar getting taxed. And specifically, they're framing this around the Koch brothers and their affiliate organizations that they've funded that support lower taxes on oil and gas, but support raising taxes on solar and other renewables. Catherine, how are you seeing this framed? Uh, and do you think it has any any life? Yeah, I mean, certainly folks like MSNBC have picked up on it, just as Jigger was on the show. And Rachel Maddow started her show with it one, uh, one evening, too. Um, I mean, it was a lead story. I think a narrative of taxing the sun or taxing the wind is, you know, it's a good narrative because, you know, for those folks who are anti-tax, this kind of plays right into them and just points up any kind of, uh, you know, hypocrisy with what they're doing. Um, so I, I don't know if it's really captured the imagination of most of the folks um, in Congress, but certainly the media is starting to pick up on it. And I think it, when consumers start picking up on it, that's really interesting. And that might drive things. You know, I don't know um, if you all know one of the biggest, I would, I would imagine Jigger would, the biggest tax incentives for solar is in Louisiana, interestingly, which is uh, Mary Landrieu's home state. So that, uh, and it expires in 2017, but a 50% tax credit for rooftop solar is pretty significant. And, you know, I'm hoping she's going to use that to gain votes 
Well, and we even have Bobby Jindal backing us on that. I mean, he, he, he's been asked to remove that tax credit, and he's pushed back and saying that you know he thinks it's a good idea. Do you think this has legs? Do you think that conservatives on a local level will rally around this taxation issue, Jigger? Yeah, look, Barry Goldwater Jr. has an organization called Tusk. And Tusk, I think, has been leading the charge in Oklahoma and Kansas this year to protect renewable energy and has won in both places. I think they're 11 and 0 now in terms of all the battles that the Koch brothers and Alec have waged against them. And um, I think that this, we, I think this is basically where we hold our stand against the Koch brothers. I think that the people powered movement that is solar, that is nonpartisan, I think will finally bring the Koch brothers a massive defeat. Well, let's finish up and tell our listeners something they don't know. Jigger, uh, any good stories this week? So I don't know if you guys saw this, but um, there was this groundbreaking uh, new EU rule, um, April 9th, um, where they, the EU formally published rules that um, is basically mandating that the EU countries redesign their subsidies away from feed-in tariffs and towards sort of more market-based schemes, um, which, you know, I think is a long time in coming, and I think it validates the approach that the U.S. took um, to promote renewable energy. But um, but I think it's, a you know, a pretty big deal, and I think that uh, it's going to make the Europeans far better off for it. Do you think we're beyond the feed-in tariff now? Yeah, I mean, the feed-in tariff was always this construct to provide, um, I think, credit support. Um, and I think that today, you know, these guys need um, a more integrated banking system that supports uh, renewable energy without the uh, full faith and credit of the German government standing behind it. <laughs> Catherine, tell us something we don't know. Yeah, so you may have seen pictures on the news about this enormous uh, train fire in Lynchburg, Virginia. As it turns out, Lynchburg is my hometown, so my folks live there. And um, my my stepdad was had to be evacuated from downtown Lynchburg. And it, looking at the movies, I noticed that, which were taken by drones, and the way the national press found out was through the Lynchburg newspaper tweeting about it, um, because it's a pretty small town. But the, the building, um, the second building closest to that train fire was the Children's Museum. And what I would just say about this is that all of these towns that were built along the river, this in this case, the James River, um, you know, they're built along rivers for trade purposes. They sent barges down the rivers. And, you know, over time, it be, they became railroad towns, everything from Roanoke to Lynchburg to Richmond and all the way down through Virginia and many, many other states as well. And those areas, as trains started uh, scaling back and we started using other modes of transportation, a lot of those downtowns have done redevelopment. So Lynchburg, all those towns in Virginia have redeveloped. It's got an incredibly vibrant downtown district. All of that space around the train is green. And what that train did was, you know, 12 cars came off the track and three or four of them exploded, dumping barrels of oil into the James River, which was on fire, caused the Richmond system to try to divert their water supply as all of this oil travels down um, down the James River. And this oil is coming from the Bakken Shale. And you know what we need to realize is that what we're doing on development um, of our fossil fuels can potentially be enormously dangerous as we try to de- redevelop our towns all around the country. And it just uh, it really hit home to me this week. Yeah. And this comes right as the uh, National Transportation Safety Board and the White House are trying to figure out new regulations for transporting 
crude oil from uh, the Bakken shale, from the Eagle Ford shale, uh, because a lot of these cars are also outdated. So many of them are these uh, old DOT 111 class cars that are designed for transporting agriculture, agricultural products, not crude oil. So it's a combination of, you know, the infrastructure for towns like this and the actual railroad infrastructure and the types of cars that are transporting this stuff. It's I think the increase has been like 800% since 2008 in terms of crude transported by rail car. Crazy. Yeah. And we want well, this redevelopment to continue too. We want these towns to thrive. Yeah, but it seems like every month or every other month we're having some major disaster or major waterway getting destroyed or something. I mean, it's just it's amazing to me how we basically want all the upside but um and but are willing to sort of cast away all the the downside um, to all this development under the rug. Well, speaking of casting away the downside, uh, not a lot of people want to pay attention to climate change. Um, But there's one new series that is uh, telling some really good stories around climate change, and hopefully it'll get more people interested. Um, Three weeks ago, Years of Living Dangerously premiered. This is the climate change documentary series from James Cameron on Showtime. And for an hour each Sunday, I have been totally glued to my television set. A lot of people have tried to find the secret sauce of storytelling that can make climate real for people. Some have certainly succeeded, but a lot have failed. And uh, I think this series really brings it home. I mean, it features well-known celebrities and journalists and top scientists searching for the clues of climate change and relates the science to people's lives in a pretty nuanced way. It's really effective storytelling and a must-see for everyone. Um, A couple years ago, I got pretty excited about it when my former boss at Climate Progress, Joe Rome, became one of the science advisors, and um, the show has certainly surpassed my expectations. And speaking of celebrities, uh, the one and only Jigger Shaw is going to appear in two two upcoming episodes on climate solutions. So, Jigger, can you tell us about what those segments will entail? Sure. Well, you know... They didn't get me my own trailer, so I wasn't happy about that. Bummer. But. And I hear that you were not <laughs> able to pitch the Energy Gang podcast while doing the interview. Exactly, exactly. Um, but no, I, one of the episodes was uh, talking about Jay Inslee and you know some of the thoughts around you know how you know our equivalent governors are you know having a hard time really um, pushing this climate change agenda through you know their work. Um, the other ones, you know, about Utility 2.0. So um, I think it's going to be fun. Nice. Well, you can watch episodes at yearsoflivingdangerously.com. Some of the past episodes are already there on the website. And I think it premieres at 9 o'clock on Showtime on Sunday nights. If you've got a DVR, you can tape it uh, or just find it online. It's really good. It's worth your time. And thanks for spending your time with us this week. I'm glad you think that we're worth it. So we'll wrap it up here. For links to the stories we discussed, go to greentechmedia.com slash podcast. While there, subscribe to the show through iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher Radio. To contact us, send an email to Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. We're always interested in your feedback or ideas for shows. Catherine, great talking with you this week. So glad to hear from you after a couple of weeks. I know. It's so great to be back. Thanks, Stephen. 
Jigger, looking forward to uh, seeing you on my television screen one of these Sundays. Have a good week. <laughs> Always a pleasure. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. Thank you.